Good evening, everyone. I am Joseph Cotto, and I am very pleased to have Walter Block on the show tonight. It's been a while since he and I last conversed. For those of you who don't know, he is an Austrian school economist as well as an anarcho-capitalist theorist, and he is the Harold E. Wirth Eminent Scholar Endowed Chair in Economics at the Loyola University New Orleans School of Business. And he also is a senior fellow at the uh, Ludwig von Mises Institute uh, in Alabama. I hope I got all that right. Uh, Walter, I'm sure he'll tell me if I did not, but how's it going, Walter? Pretty good. That's a big mouthful and you did very well. <laughs> Outstanding. It's, it's interesting because, I mean, when it comes to the Austrian school, I mean, it's considered a heterodox school of economics, but from the Austrian perspective, it's the only school that makes sense. I agree. I fully agree with you there. <laughs> so it's, I think a lot of people, perhaps before we get into discussing the economy in 2024, which is the hell of a subject, but uh, a lot of people probably aren't familiar with the Austrian school relative to other schools. How would you describe it to them? Well, first of all, the Austrian School of Economics has nothing, or certainly not much, to do with the economy of the country Austria. Rather, it is called the Austrian School of Economics because the people who started it all just happened to live in Austria. Um, Menger, um, Wieser, Bambavirk, uh, Mises, Hayek, these are the leaders of our school of thought. And uh, they were all practicing at one time or another in Austria. It's very similar to the Chicago School of Economics, uh, which together with the Austrian are usually considered the only free enterprise schools of, of um, economics. Uh, the Chicago School has very little to do, maybe nothing, with the economics of the uh, city of Chicago. Rather, it's because um, Milton Friedman and George Stigler um, and others um, like that happen to be professors at the University of Chicago. So that's why it's called the um, Chicago School of Economics. Now, we're, uh, we do overlap with the, the Chicago School and, and Public Choice and other schools partially. It's sort of like a Venn diagram. Uh, we agree partially with them. And then we are a, a bit more radical than them. Uh, both in terms of methodology and in terms of um, public policy uh, analysis. Uh, to take the latter first, uh, the Austrian school would um, pretty much oppose, I think there are no exceptions, all antitrust laws. Uh, we, we say the only monopoly is government monopoly. There cannot be any such thing as private monopoly. Therefore, we don't need antitrust law. Uh, I think virtually all Austrians, and by the way, we don't agree on everything. There are divergences within the school, both in Austrian, Chicago, everywhere. Uh, economists and other scholars uh, debate. But I think it's fair to say that virtually all Austrians would say we don't need um, uh, uh, antitrust uh, legislation, and virtually all Chicagoans and mainstreamers certainly would say, you don't toot and we do. So that would be one uh, area where we uh, disagree. But then there are areas where we agree with the other free enterprise school of thought uh, on the minimum wage law, there shouldn't be any, which would be a, a radical way to look at it, not, not just that it shouldn't be raised, but that it should be repealed totally. Uh, rent control would be another one, free trade would be another one. And here the Austrians and the Chicago people are, uh, I think, um, indistinguishable. Uh, we all uh, favor the free enterprise school of thought uh, in, in those areas. Uh, okay, so much for public policy implications. Now for uh, the philosophy. And this gets a little um, 
uh, complicated, so I'm glad you're sitting down, and I hope the audience is all sitting down. Um, for the Chicagoans who are logical positivists, the, the logical positive school of Vienna, as it happens, uh, there are only two kinds of statements. One is a tautology and the other is an empirical statement. What's a tautology? A tautology is something that is necessarily true and really says nothing about the real world, but is absolutely true and you don't have to test it. For example, bachelors are unmarried men. You don't go around to bachelors and say, are you married? <laughs> they're bachelors, they're not married. And if they're married, they're not bachelors. So it doesn't really say much about the world or or empirical reality, it just says something about how we use words. And the way we use the word bachelor is for an unmarried man. Uh, you can't test it, but it's absolutely true. That's its tautology. And the other would be a, uh, an empirical statement. It's raining outside. Well, you want to know if it's raining outside, you peek your head out of the window and you look outside. And if it's raining, um, it's raining. And if it's not raining, it's not raining. Uh, uh, this would tell us about the real world, nobody denies that, and it would also um, be testable. Namely, the test is not much of a test, you've got to go look. But is there a third kind of uh, statement, uh, which is called the synthetic a priori? And what the synthetic a priori is, is a statement that is necessarily absolutely true, and yet it tells you something about the world? This, for the logical positivist, is um, anathema. It is um, cultist, it is weird, it is nonsense. And the Austrians um, believe in this. The Austrians think that, um, uh, yes, uh, economics consists of lots of empirical statements, but it also consists of synthetic a priori. For example, you bought that lovely tie. You paid 30 bucks for the, the tie. At the time you bought that tie, you valued that tie more than 30 bucks. Well, I shouldn't say you valued the tie more than 30 bucks. Uh, I should say there was something about that tie that you valued more than 30 bucks. It might be that there was a very pretty um, uh, lady selling the tie and you figured you don't really like the tie, but you figured that if you bought the tie, you'd get a date with her. But there was something about that tie that you like more than 30 bucks. Otherwise you're not gonna kick in 30 bucks. Now, that is something that is absolutely true, undeniable, can't be tested, and yet it tells something about the world. And another one would be uh, the guy who sold you that tie or the gal who sold you that tie valued the tie less than 30 bucks. She had 300 of them in, a, in the store. She probably valued them in five cents. She had so many. She might even value them negatively. They're taking up space. But the point is that she valued that tie less than 30 bucks and she made a profit. And another uh, synthetic a priority is that whenever there's voluntary trade, there's mutual benefit and mutual profit. So. We're, we're coming up with a lot. Another one would be the minimum wage. Uh, in equilibrium, not always in equilibrium, but when we're in equilibrium, a minimum wage of $15 an hour will unemploy everyone whose marginal revenue product is less than 15. Suppose my productivity is uh, $10 an hour. That means that if you hire me, your receipts go up by $10 an hour. But you have to pay me 15? You're not gonna hire me. And now we can't test that. We can only illustrate that. 
We could do an econometric analysis, and sometimes the econometric analysis shows that, yes, when you have a minimum wage law of 15, anyone whose productivity is less than that will be unemployed. And sometimes it doesn't show that. And when it doesn't show that, what we do is we reject the empirical analysis because we have we are apodictically sure, based on uh, praxeology, which is the uh, synonym for Austrianism, that that is true. So this would be a difference between the Austrians in terms of methodology uh, as distinct from public policy analysis. It's fascinating. I mean, obviously, and there's a lot more people can, can check into. I myself, I, I, I don't consider myself to be a member of any economic school per se. I'm a socio-political realist and obviously that pertains to economics. But I think fundamentally, the Austrian school gets a lot right about how the economy works at a brass tax level. One very interesting book is Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt, which, you know, that that's sort of, I, I would imagine, maybe very, very light uh, bedtime reading for Walter, because there's a hell of a lot more to be written about the Austrian school than uh, what Henry Hazlitt did. But his book about economics, regardless of what you believe regarding economic philosophy, is an excellent introduction, very brief introduction into how the economy functions, not just as an abstract entity, but he talks about concrete examples that uh, people should find relevant to their lives. Even today, when you consider the book was originally published in, I believe, 1949, and then it had its second edition in the late 70s, and it still sells very well to this day, obviously for good reason. Uh, that's one of the two books that converted me from my socialistic background. Uh, when I went to high school, Bernie Sanders and I were fellow buddies and I had the same views as him. That plus Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand are the two books that converted me to uh, free market uh, economics. That I mean, it's obviously that powerful of a book uh, to, have, uh, to have had such an impact on someone as intelligent as Walter. It's, it's really a great illustration, like I said, of how the economy works. People should check it out. I'm not being paid by anyone to say that. Uh, the book is just worth your while. So uh, please do uh, consider it if you just want to figure out what the hell is going on with this economy that seems so, that is so difficult to understand. It's so multifaceted and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it, it's crazy. And speaking of the craziness, obviously we are in 2024. It is an election year. It's also the beginning of the middle part of the 2020s. Uh, so a consequential year one way or the other. But as I always tell people, you know, if you look at a picture from 10 years ago and a picture from today, you really can't tell the difference. It looks about the same. So I kind of get the impression that we're stuck in a very long decade, uh, even though, you know, we're already in the mid 2020s. It's a bizarre thing. I would say we're in the middle of a long decade since probably about the late 2000s, but that's a whole nother story. Uh, certainly, though, several economic uh, issues that were prevalent in the late 2000s remain prevalent to this day. One could say that they cycled down, they cycled back in. Others would say they never really went away. Uh, but regardless of one's perspective, we are dealing with a lot of things that have been dealt with before. Uh, I, I think perhaps the first thing to look at is uh, interest rates. Uh, I mean, the, the, the Fed did announce today that it is going to hike interest rates, which surprised a lot of people because a lot of people thought that interest rates would be uh, cut down on. Uh, it, it was it surmised this would happen because the Federal Reserve would do what it could to help Joe Biden in his re-election year, even though the Fed is theoretically nonpartisan. We all know how it typically operates. Uh, and what's happening is definitely not to Biden's liking. And yet these higher interest rates, 
will have a massive impact on the economy. I would say a good one because it's the, the surest way I can see that Uncle Sam can combat inflation, at least readily. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's going to create a difficult environment for home buying, for loans of all kinds. Uh, and that is going to keep the economy uh, a, more than a bit sluggish. Uh, but the alternative is soaring inflation. Walter, anything to say about the situation with rates and the Fed? Well, yes, uh, there is another um, divergence between the Austrians and the uh, mainstream economists on uh, the business cycle. Uh, here, we diverge uh, radically from them. Uh, we Austrians, I can't speak for all Austrians, but in my view, uh, the mainstream, uh, they're all Keynesians, including Milton Friedman and monetarists and right-wing Keynesians and left-wing Keynesians. Uh, so let me explain this a little bit. Uh, but first of all, I would say that the interest rate is one of the most important prices we have. The interest rate, you think the interest rate is only relevant to uh, banks and loans and stuff like that, but that's not true. Uh, the interest rate pervades everything in a way that the price of lima beans or the price of oil does not pervade everything. Well, the price of oil gets around uh, more than the price of lima beans, but the uh, interest rate gets around even more uh, uh, than the uh, uh, the, the price of oil, uh, because uh, uh, the interest rate is um, implicit uh, in uh, present discounted value of everything. Uh, investments and how much is the house valued and how much is your car valued at. So the interest rate is, is crucially important. And why in bloody blazes the Fed setting the interest rate? They don't set the price of lima beans. They don't set the price of oil. Why should they set? Why should anyone set the price of uh, the interest rate uh, when the that price is so important? Rather, it should be set by the um, by the free enterprise system by um, um, uh, by lending and borrowing and, and saving and investment and things like that. Uh, if you have a high time preference, uh, if you're impatient for the future, we'll get a higher interest rate. If you have a low time preference rate, you'll get a, a lower interest rate. The interest rate should be the embodiment of the uh, the, the time preference rates of, of all the people. And with the Fed, it's not. And therefore, I say with Ron Paul, get rid of the Fed, end the Fed, or uh, whatever the uh, phrase is. Okay, let me talk a little bit about the business cycle. Now, according to the Keynesians, the market is very, uh, what's the word, um, subject to uh, market failure. We have market failure here, where the, the, the economy is sort of like a car on a very narrow road. And on one side is unemployment, and on the other side is inflation. And uh, we got to keep that car on the very narrow road, and only the Fed uh, uh, can do that because um, uh, the market is uh, subject to exuberance and, and it'll either uh, fall off the ditch into one direction of, um, uh, of inflation or the other direction of um, uh, unemployment. Uh, one of the <laughs> big problems with that is a thing called stagflation, namely when you have both. Now what are you supposed to do? Well, there's no real answer uh, from, from the Keynesians. And the only difference between a right-wing Keynesian like Milton Friedman, who's a monetarist, and a left-wing Keynesian like, I guess, Krugman, um, is th that the uh, monetarist Keynesians say that the way to keep the car on the road is through monetary policy. The other guys say that the best way to keep the car on the road is through fiscal policy. But in terms of the um, uh, 
the situation where, where the economy is not stable. In, in terms of the instability of the economy, they both agree. The Austrians take a very different view. There's no market failure, no market failure at all. No public goods, no externalities, no um, uh, uh, business cycle, no, no market failure, period. So what's going on here? What's going on here is that the, um, uh, the Fed uh, increases the money supply. Why do they do that? Well, there are three ways that the government can get money. One is through taxes. And the problem with taxes from the government's point of view is that everyone knows who's doing the taxing. You can't blame private enterprise for taxes. It would be unbelievable. Even um, the, the man in the street wouldn't believe that private enterprise is taxing people. The second way is borrowing. And again, we know who's doing the borrowing. The third way is through inflation. And this is magnificent from the point of view of the government because you can blame it on a greedy capitalists, even on greedy uh, laborers for unions, uh, greedy shoppers. You can blame it on everybody except the real cause, which is the uh, central bank. So what happens when, um, when the government creates inflation is that not only the prices of everything go up, but also interest rates go down. And when interest rates go down, what this leads uh, is a misallocation of resources through time. Namely, uh, uh, short-term investments um, become a little bit more uh, profitable. But, uh, but for example, when the interest rate goes down from 4% to 3%, money receivable in a year from now, instead of being worth um, uh, 96 cents, it's now worth 97 cents. So you have a little impetus to invest for a one-year uh, duration. But if you look at what's going on for 20-year uh, investments, uh, there's a gigantic impetus to, to have long roundabout methods of production rather than uh, shorter ones. Uh, for example, um, uh, building a, a tunnel or, or a steel mill or something like that, as opposed to uh, a year's uh, uh, you know, a crop, uh, crop of corn or something, which takes a year. So what this does is it leads the market uh, to misallocate resources into long roundabout processes of production, which the savings and investment decisions of the people will not justify. And uh, eventually uh, there, there comes a crack up boom, uh, a crack up of the boom. Uh, to make an analogy, it, it's sort of like getting drunk. Getting drunk feels good. Low interest rates, investment, and then the economy is booming. But the next morning, you don't feel all that well. You feel a little sick. And the way the Austrians look at that is that the depression is the good thing, whereas the boom is the bad thing, because the boom is getting drunk. Whereas the depression, even though your stomach aches and your head aches, that's good, because you're getting rid of the poisons. So we don't try to get rid of the depression. We, want the, we don't want the government to bail out uh, failing companies because those companies shouldn't have been in existence in the first place. So here we have a radical uh, difference between the Austrians and the mainstream in terms of the business cycle and interest rates and, and things like that. So I, I think uh, we would be much better off if there were no Fed and there were no um, uh, interferences with the market rate of interest, because whenever there are, you misallocate resources. Look, if you um, uh, have an um, uh, um, uh, interference with the price of oil, uh, you're going to have an interference. If you make it too high, uh, you'll get more oil than you want. And if you make it too low, uh, people will use more of it. Uh, well, it, the same thing goes with the interest rate. And the government is messing up with the interest rate, and they ought to stop it.
Yeah, it's interesting because inflation obviously does create. Well, I, I should back up. When there is easy money, uh, the market soars, uh, and obviously it crashes down when people don't have enough to pay back whatever they took out loans to get. Uh, how long this is, how long this winds up being, how long it goes from boom to bust, that changes. But the cycle is what it is. Uh, so there's no question that inflationary policies do screw up. The marketplace, all marketplaces, they just you said misallocation of resources. That's uh, spot on. That, that, that's uh, the great way of describing it in a nutshell. But at the same time, people tend to love policies for, as you mentioned, which cause inflation. It's like getting drunk. Uh, but then, of course, there's the hangover. Uh, so inflation, you know, it, it does screw up the market, but uh, people tend to like what causes inflation. So it's this very difficult thing when it comes to combating uh, inflation, wherein uh, people don't like having to deal with a weakened dollar, but at the same time, they love what gets them to the point that the dollar is weakened. Uh, how the hell does one put up with that? It's it's an interesting question, and I certainly have no answer for it, but any perspective you have, Walter, would be appreciated. Well, I think the answer is market fundamentalism. Namely, my motto is, if it moves, privatize it. If it doesn't move, privatize it. And since everything either moves or doesn't move, privatize everything. I'm an anarcho-capitalist. I believe that the government is per se um, uh, a, a rights-violating institution because it compels you to pay taxes. Whereas any other person who compels you to do anything against your will to which you have not agreed is a, is a, a robber, a, a thief. So the government is a robber. The government is a thief. We shouldn't have the government. We should just have free enterprise. And then I think we would be uh, a lot better off. It's interesting because obviously a lot of people, you know, the idea of believing that a government would send them uh, crazy. Uh, and I, I myself believe there does have to be a government, but I have heard very, very sharp anarcho-capitalist perspectives from people like Walter. Uh, and it's fascinating uh, the idea of living without a government, there are theories about basically private associations, sort of, I think, like a homeowner's association. That'd be the, the closest analogy uh, within our government, within our societal framework. Uh, and uh, they are interesting. They are. Here in Florida, it, it, the law is such that in order to vote in an HOA, you have to be, or in a CDD, Community Development District, which uh, HOAs can operate under. It's, it's kind of strange explaining because Florida is a unique system. But in order to be a voting uh, member of a CDD, you have to be a property owner. And I think Florida is the last, one of the last places wherein there is a property owning requirement under law to vote because it's obviously it's under the state statute that the community development district can happen and then an HOA exists within the CDD. Uh, so fascinating stuff. That's sort of getting into the way of what something might look like without a state where in a private association runs things, although obviously uh, dealing with no layer of government, just having it be a private uh, enterprise, uh, that's taking it to an entirely different level. Well, if you uh, want to vote in uh, for IBM or for U.S. Steel, uh, you have to own a share of stock. Namely, you have to own property. If you want to vote in an HOA, you have to have an H, namely a home. Uh, nothing wrong with that. Uh, on the other hand, if you want to vote in the chess club, uh, you don't have to even own a chess uh, set. Uh, you can play on someone else's chess set. But uh, the idea that uh, property is a criteria for voting is not something that we should uh, sneer at. It's perfectly reasonable. 
Now, looking at where inflation is likely to go this year, I mean, that, that's the biggest economic issue. Uh, no question. It's the issue that is having the biggest impact upon the election and people's day-to-day lives. But where do you expect things to go now, especially in light of what uh, the Fed did, announcing that it's going to hike interest rates? Uh, do you think that inflation will sort of remain the same? Do you think it'll go up, go down? I've obviously heard a lot of different things, but your point of view is of uh, special significance. Well, you're asking me to predict uh, the future of the economy. And my usual answer to that is uh, economists predict to show we have a sense of humor. Because <laughs> we don't know. If we knew, we'd be a lot richer than we are. If we knew which way uh, the Fed was going to go or which way the economy was going to go, we could uh, invest in such a way that we'd be uh, very, very wealthy. And economists are uh, not billionaires. Many of us are billionaires. Uh, but today, with today's inflation, to be a millionaire is no real big deal. It used to be that Bernie Sanders would inveigh against millionaires and billionaires. He stopped inveighing against millionaires because he is one. Uh, most middle class people have a million dollar house uh, uh, without a mortgage, uh, so they're millionaires. Uh, I'm, I'm much better at saying if they do this, then that's what's going to happen. But I'm very bad, and I think I speak for most economists, um, all of them, uh, as to what the government is going to do, or who's going to discover oil, or who's going to um, uh, have something bombed, or whatever. Namely, economics doesn't teach you that. It really doesn't teach you how to predict the future. So I, I uh, have to be a, a bit modest. I hope you won't consider me too unduly modest, but I don't really know what will happen. But I think I have a grasp on... If they do this, this will happen. If they do that, that will happen. Uh, and what might they do? Well, if if we have more inflation, uh, we're going to have more of a misallocation of resources. If we have less inflation, uh, we'll have less of a misallocation of resources, and we'll have less of a hangover in a year, two, three, or four, uh, whenever the uh, the bust comes, as inevitably it must. Because if it didn't, we get into a hyperinflation of the type that the Germans had in 1920. Uh, where you get uh, hyperinflation, it's called. And uh, I don't think anyone wants to go there. So I, I would predict that we're not going to go there. And, and if we uh, start moving in that direction, they'll slam on the brakes. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I, I, I think there is really, uh, I mean, there's really no question that there's a difference of opinion uh, within the Biden administration. The folks in the White House want to see more easy money because, you know, that makes people feel good about the economy, even though it's a short term thing. But people aren't thinking about what's inevitably going to take place. Uh, they certainly aren't focused on the long run. Uh, but then, of course, the Fed is saying, no, we need to hike these rates again. Uh, so trying to figure this all out is <laughs> something of a fool's errand. But I, I will say that the fact that there is obviously such division in D.C. over this speaks to great uncertainty about the economy itself this year. Well, look, uh, we have um, Israel and Hamas and we have Russia and Ukraine. And if the government is going to pour billions, maybe not trillions, but hundreds of billions of dollars into these war 
areas, well, that would lead us into thinking that there will be um, more inflation. On the other hand, if Hamas and Israel um, uh, settle somehow, and if uh, the Russia and Ukraine um, stops being a war and settles in some way, well, then there'd be less impetus. But I don't know what's going to happen with Hamas and Israel. I don't know what's going to happen with the Ukraine. But I can say that if the U.S needs more money, the U.S. government needs more money uh, in order to uh, finance these wars or their activities, um, well, then then the spigots will be on and, and we will have more inflation. But again, I, I don't know what's, I don't think anyone really knows what's going to happen with Hamas and Ukraine. Certainly, economists have no specialization or division of labor kind of uh, expertise on anything like that. I mean, the impact which global events have on the domestic economy can't be understated, especially since the economy has become so globalized for a host of reasons, not the least of which is the advancement of information technology. But, uh, you know, you, I mean, you're obviously correct. Uh, trying to figure this stuff out is very difficult indeed. Uh, I, I think that what a lot of people think uh, should happen is that inflation should be put under control interest rates should simultaneously go down and uh, everything should just sort of even out somehow. But that's, you know, it goes without saying, it's not a realistic point of view. But in my opinion, that's sort of what the public wants to see. Uh, any perspective on what you think the public wants in terms of economic renewal over the next year? Well, that's a good question. Um... I think the average guy is more concerned about, I don't know, beer and pizza and bowling uh, than, than the economy. And it's only, um, I don't know, in the fall of every four years that he turns his face or his head toward, uh, toward politics. Uh, I, I don't think that the average person wants to go back to gold. But I think if we went back to gold uh, as money, and the Fed had nothing to do with anything and there were no central bank and there were no fraction reserve uh, banking, uh, the economy would be much better uh, than it is now. Uh, but, you know, Milton Friedman calls gold the barbarous relic. No, I think it was Keynes. I forget who called it a barbarous relic, but, you know, Friedman had this free to choose series on TV, which I like very much. But whenever people were free to choose, they chose gold to, to be the, the money. And now they're not free to choose. And, and Friedman is not saying, let's go back to gold. Uh, Friedman is saying, well, the Fed should have a, a 2% increase in the money supply um, every year, 2 or 3%. And I agree with Friedman that if the, if the Fed did that, uh, namely uh, a lot of its power were taken away from it, that would be good. In other words, uh, the best policy would be end the Fed. But if you can't end the Fed, what's the second best policy? Put handcuffs on the Fed and limit them to increasing the money supply by 2% every year. That would be a lot better than allowing them to have discretion because God knows what they're going to do. And certainly there is such a thing called the political business cycle that you were alluding to. Namely, uh, Biden wants um, a certain policy so that in November or uh, October of uh, this year, 24, when we're getting ready to vote, the economy is booming. So he would want a, um, a boom uh, around October, November. Uh, and, and the Fed, I think, would try to accommodate him. 
And this would be very bad. So it'd be much better if they had a 2% rule and, and they were handcuffed and um, prescribed in, in that manner. Uh, but I don't think the average um, person in, in <laughs> the average citizen is, is going to be uh, really cognizant of any of this. Yeah, a lot of people, very few people really have a deep understanding of how the economy works. And in a way, it's understandable because it's so uh, difficult to describe, let alone begin to really intricately analyze and things were always changing. Uh, so one's analysis can become instantly outdated. Arguably, to some extent, it does, unless you're talking about really deep fundamentals, which is something like what uh, Henry Hazlitt wrote about. Uh, but looking at, at, at how people, the average person, interacts with the economy, uh, a lot of people focus on it when something is going wrong. Uh, when something is going great, they very soon take for granted their good economic conditions, uh, and they just expect things to remain that way, even though the economy is going through the same boom-bust cycle that it always goes through, and they just lose track of things as it's heading into the boom or going through the boom. Uh, and then it's when things decline that they say, what on earth is going on with this economy? So it's, it's unique looking at this sociologically. Uh, it really is. Well, you know, you ask about the average person's assessment of the economy. The average person, to get back to a thing we were discussing before, loves the minimum wage law. The average person thinks that the minimum wage law is a floor under wages, and the higher you boost it, the higher are wages. Uh, right now, uh, Bernie Sanders has stopped asking for a $15 an hour minimum wage. I think he's up to 20 or 22 or 25, something like that. And uh, what is the average person thinking of? Whenever they do public opinion polls of the average voter, they favor the minimum wage law uh, by a large majority. I don't have any uh, figures in front of me, but uh, based on past experience, this is a very popular uh, thing. Another very popular thing is uh, protectionism. Uh, Donald Trump is no free enterpriser. He's pretty good on some things and better than Biden, in my view, on many things. But on, on protectionism, the average guy wants to have a tariff against the importation of whatever he's working at. I mean, if he works in a steel mill, he doesn't want foreign steel coming in. So the average person is... Um, ignorant of the economy, and the average person all too often takes the wrong view. The average person ought to read <laughs> Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt and get clear on, on the effects of minimum wage and, and rent control and, and tariffs and protectionism and things like that. Uh, there is one area where Milton Freeman is very good, and that's on occupational licensure, uh, where in order to become a doctor or a uh, I don't know, anything. You have to have all sorts of um, uh, licenses, which is a way of precluding entry, of reducing competition. And uh, Friedman is very good on that. It's too bad he doesn't apply it to banking. Uh, and in this, he, he sort of um, uh, exemplifies Rothbard's law. Rothbard's law is that people specialize in what they're horrible in. Friedman was great on occupational licensure, on, on uh, taxi cab, uh, on minimum wage, rent control. And what did he focus on instead? Money, where he was not great. And also educational vouchers, which is 
he's not great. What we ought to do in education is just privatize it. If you want to get education, it should be like a, a tie or bubble gum. You, you go and buy some. And, you know, the obvious um, retort is, well, what about the poor? Well, what about the poor for bubble gum? What about the poor for ties and shirts? Uh, the, the poor can buy a T-shirt <laughs> pretty easily because that's a pretty free enterprise um, uh, entity, uh, T-shirts. Uh, so I, I think, um, you know, the, the poor can dress up because clothing is, is a competitive industry. Obviously, competition does tend to drive the price for things down, uh, and that's how a lot of people are able to afford clothes, which uh, was not necessarily the case a few generations back, where people tend to have very few articles of clothing, uh, but now they have a lot, regardless of their income level. Uh, generally speaking, they have a lot, uh, in part because the value of clothes, uh, the real value of clothes, has declined. Uh, it, it's it's something else. Uh, but of course, the quality has declined as well. The more this stuff is mass-produced, the less longer it's going to last because less money can go into producing it because everybody wants this stuff cheaper, and that's understandable. But, uh, you know, it's just one of those situations where it is what it is. One thing I think to discuss before we move on to other aspects of the economy, uh, this actually is a timely issue. It's not something, you know, abstract or theoretical. School choice. School choice is a big, big uh, thing pushed by the GOP, and it continues to be this year. It's certainly not going anywhere. I'm in Florida, and the economy uh well the economy of florida when it comes to the educational sector is increasingly dependent upon the school choice voucher system now even religious institutions are getting school choice vouchers uh e even though the state has a blaine amendment which prohibits uh state money from going to religious institutions uh, for educational purposes it's a crazy crazy thing that'd be an episode in and of itself but uh i am very much opposed to the state vouchers being used to fund uh religious institutions uh it, it, and one sees this with education obviously but the the problem is that when the private education system becomes so infused with state dollars regardless of any religious concerns Obviously, the day will come when somebody in the state government says, well, you know, we're funding your institution, even though we're not giving you a grant to, you know, have A, B, and C uh, classes, uh, we are funding the tuition that people pay to you. So the state, therefore, should begin to dictate what you teach. I think this argument is going to come from the state at some point. I, I really do think it's an inevitability. And I think a lot of Republicans don't see uh, the importance of or the significance of this. Uh, and I, I also think that propping up private institutions with public dollars is generally a very bad idea. And, uh, you know, the way a lot of private schools, especially parochial ones, keep going nowadays is through state funding, you know, state funding the tuition that's paid to the schools. And that really is just preventing, as with anything else that receives state funding in the private sector, uh, when it comes to, you know, the idea of keeping it running rather than like for a specific project, uh, these the schools which are dying out in the marketplace, uh, they continue to exist for synthetic reasons. It's not that there's really a market demand for them, it's that people are taking advantage of government money and an artificial demand is being created because, you know, if people can get their hands on the money, why wouldn't they take it? But how much longer will the money be available for? I mean, that goes into what sort of tax revenue the government collects. It goes into a lot of different things. Uh, it, it goes into political considerations, whether or not funds would still want, whether or not someone would still want to allocate funds for these school choice programs 
programs uh, as time goes on and new issues come up, which require money. But the bottom line is that uh, the school choice programs, I'm not a fan of them. And uh, it's not good when private institutions, especially religious ones, receive public funding, because obviously sooner or later, the government's going to start making demands of what these institutions teach. Uh, so that that's my soapbox about this. But since it is playing such a large role in the economy, the school choice perspective, particularly in GOP states, Walter, anything to say about it? Yes, uh, I agree with you. I like your soapbox. Uh, it's a great soapbox. Uh, we even have an aphorism to exemplify this, and it's called, he who pays the piper calls the tune. Mm -hmm. Wherever the money comes from, that person gets a uh, uh, gets a inordinate uh, decision-making over what's taught. Uh, now, I'm a big fan of uh, DeSantis. Thank God for DeSantis. Uh, you're from Florida. Florida is where woke goes to die. I love it. Um, but I don't agree with him uh, telling universities, well, you can't talk about DEI. You can't talk about critical race theory, uh, stuff like that. And yet, I understand where he's coming from. Is the left has taken over uh, the uh, higher education, and all you have is um, I don't know Marxists and economic Marxists and cultural Marxists and DEI people and black studies and queer studies and all sorts of weird studies. Uh, so I, I understand where he's coming from, but I, I think that um, you, you're absolutely right that um, uh, it, it is dangerous for the uh, government to tell education people what they can teach and what they can't teach. And certainly it's dangerous when the government uh, supports religious organizations. But what about the separation of church and state is, is one problem. Another problem is they undermine religion. Uh, another problem is um, they incult, uh, inculcate not only religious schools, but uh, even elementary schools with uh, uh, drag queens and, and uh, telling 10-year-old kids about uh, having a sex change operation, and then uh, there are parents who uh, who object to this, and, and then they, they threaten to put those parents in jail uh, for objecting to, to what these um, educrats are doing. So th this is a, a big part of the economy, education, and, and it's um, a big mess. And I think the solution, I hate to be like a, a parrot yelling free enterprise, free enterprise, free enterprise, but I am a parrot yelling free enterprise. And the, the answer is to privatize education. And then you have some vestige of parental control coming over. If the parents don't like what's being taught, well, then they go to another school. And, and that's why we have pretty good restaurants. If you don't like McDonald's, you go to Burger King. You don't like Burger King, you go to Wendy's. That's why all three of them are pretty good. Not perfect, not excellent, but pretty good. Well, we, should, we have a very good system uh, uh, in, in many areas, but we don't use it to apply to education. Um, uh, Thomas Sowell, one of my favorite economists, has this... Um, uh, view. Um, uh, let me see if I can say his uh, famous quote of his, that my favorite quote of his is, it's a stupid system that if you make a mistake, you pay no penalty for it. Well, if, if you're screwing up with education and it's a public uh, enterprise, uh, you can't go broke. Well, if you can't go broke, well, of course, uh, <laughs> you're not going to be efficient. Now, the vouchers is an attempt to make public education a little more efficient, but we don't want an efficient public education. What we want is private education. Um, if the thing is, is um, 
problematic to its roots. We don't want it more efficient. We want it changed. We want it privatized. So I'm not a big fan of, of, of Friedman's voucher system. I think instead we should uh, privatize uh, the whole thing. And, you know, we, we didn't have public education. When did it start? I think it was something like 1875 or 1890. Before then, there was no public education. And people got educated. The poor got educated. People would give scholarships to poor kids who couldn't afford to go to school. So there's nothing sacrosanct about um, uh, public education. And there's nothing sacrosanct about um, uh, what do you call it? social security. We didn't have social security until I think it was 1913 or somewhere in there. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not a historian. I don't remember the exact years, but there, many of these programs that the public now likes with education, health, welfare, um, uh, we didn't always have, and we did fine without them. And the reason they were inculcated was because um, uh, certain government enterprises uh, um, got more votes uh, based on them. It's interesting because Social Security exists principally because people uh, cannot be trusted to set money aside for their retirement and invest it. And if you look at how people, even with Social Security being around, raid their 401ks or just don't set any money aside for retirement at all, uh, you certainly see why uh why, why there is the expectation that somehow the government will provide a, a future for these folks in retirement or future for people generally and needless to mention also people don't have any say when their uh money is taken out of their paycheck to fund their social security uh but you know so the social security system most certainly is not funded well for the long run uh, it, it's 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 something I always see the value of the arguments uh, of why you know retirement funding should be privatized. Uh, but then I see people screwing themselves over uh, when it comes to any aspect of personal finance. That uh, those people would be out on the street in retirement. There'd probably be some sort of violent revolution as a result of that. Uh, it, it's really uh, I think that the, the saddest thing here uh, is that people are not taught early on to think about the future when it comes to their economic situation. They're not taught about investing. They're not taught about budgeting. They're not taught about uh, the long run. They're not taught about having a, taught about having a low time preference. Uh, they instead are just taught not much at all in the way of home economics or personal finance. And they wind up doing crazy things like uh, being hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt by the time they're 30. Uh, and by the time they're 40, the situation has not improved, or maybe it's even worse. Uh, and, you know, when they're 60, 65, 70, uh, they don't have enough for retirement. It, it's, it's awful. And this does go back to people not being educated about how to deal with their personal financial situation. Uh, they just don't have a frame of reference for it. Well, you know, it's also profoundly anti-democratic. What we're saying when we have a social security system is you're too stupid to save for your old age. However, we're going to let you vote. <laughs> you know, if you're so stupid that you can't save for your old age, why are we letting you vote? And on the other hand, if we're letting you vote, which we are and we should, well, then we're saying that you're not that stupid. You can certainly save for your old age. Uh, I mean, before uh, Social Security was implemented, uh, people saved for their old age. Yes, there is a 1%, 2% that uh, the people that you mentioned that can't. And, you know, we have to have private charity to help them, of course. But by and large, we're telling everybody in, in the whole country that you're too stupid to save for your old education. And also, it's a Ponzi scheme. 
when when you you're younger than me, you look a lot younger than me, <laughs> and, and I'm on Social Security, and I assume you're not yet. Mm-hmm. And the money that I'm getting is not from the money I put in; it's money that you're now putting in, and it's going to me. And where did I get the? Uh, where did the money that I put in go? It went to people who were 20, 30 years older than me. So oh, this okay. is a classic case of the Ponzi scheme, and and if. We have laws against Ponzi scheme. We ought to put the Social Security Administration in jail for engaging in a vast Ponzi scheme. So, and yet Donald Trump is saying, "Oh, Social Security is sacrosanct," and and people love Social Security. I mean, I mean, if you take a survey of um, the average uh, voter, do you favor Social Security? Yes. So they're really voting for their own stupidity. I mean, it's just <laughs> it's just weird. You know, if people were taught really taught i mean like they have to start from the time they're uh in elementary school about uh home economics and personal finance they would not there would not be a need for a social security system because they would learn to set aside as much as possible for the future and they learn how to invest that money for the future uh but with society or whatever passes for being what it is there just is nothing like this sort of uh the drive for this uh across the country i mean Today, a lot of people, before they even get their paycheck, they're in debt so much that uh, what they owe has eaten up what they're earning. It's, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's depressing, really depressing. Uh, and it says something beyond anything to do with money. It says something about where people are at psychologically. You know, I'm the sort of person. I would rather not have a dime to my name yet not have a debt liability than earn uh, $500,000 a year yet have a a debt of a million dollars a year. And obviously that's going to gain every passing year unless it's paid down and eventually gets to the point that you can't pay down the the interest you don't even get to the principal uh it's it's that's just my point of view but most people today in america they seem to they would rather just get into debt actually among younger generations this is absolutely true it's discussing with murray saber uh they would rather get into debt uh they would rather stay in debt it's not that they actually like being in debt but they just don't care and they will keep buying, they'll keep spending, they'll do this and that. And there sort of is this background expectation that the government will make it all even out. The government will forgive their student loans. The government will somehow set a, a livable wage for them. The government will be there to fund their retirement. And it's this bizarre point of view that that really makes no sense, but it's not supposed to. It's highly emotional. Uh, and it's just sad to see because you see people screwing themselves over so uh, so brutally, uh, and it's 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 also unnecessary. Well, you know, I think uh, you make a good point about the uh, what did they say? Nobody ever went broke underestimating the intelligence of the average person. But um, uh, in addition to people not being aware of saving and investment, uh, I think the main function of the uh, Social Security is to make people more dependent upon government. And you make a very good point about debt. And one of the problems is um, bankruptcy laws. Uh, I owe a million dollars. I owe you a million dollars. And now I declare bankruptcy. I I stole a million dollars from you, in effect. Uh, We used to have debtors' prisons. If we had debtors' prisons, um, debt would be a lot more moderate uh, than it is now. 
So I, I think that um, you put your finger or your thumb on or your finger or whatever on a very important part of the economy. Uh, people are taking on too much debt uh, because the government will will back the, the, the big mommy or big daddy government will back them up. And we have too much big mommy and big daddy uh, government. Absolutely. Yeah. People, they just somehow expect the government to solve their problems in a host of ways, not even limited to money, although it really it all does boil down to money because the government requires money to do anything. But people expect the government to, uh, I mean, now there's even a push for the redefinition of what a sexual battery law is so that if a woman feels that a man misled her into having sex, uh, that the guy could theoretically, the guy could be prosecuted under this theoretical law. It not, it's not on the books anywhere yet, but people want the government to step in, even to this bizarre extent when it comes to, I suppose, making somebody feel better about their self-worth. Uh, it just goes to show how crazy this mentality has become. Well, it's part of wokeism. I mean, if you use the wrong pronoun, pronoun on, on a college campus, uh, you know, you're, you're in trouble. Uh, we, we had the uh, presidents of three major universities um, uh, uh, being interviewed by a, a congresswoman. Uh, this was MIT, Harvard, and uh, Penn. And the, these are the three of the most prestigious universities. And they were asked, well, uh, if you call for the um, uh, genocide of killing all Jews, uh, is that compatible with Harvard uh, principles? Mm. And, and the answer was, Oh, it depends on context and who knows. And, and yet, if you use the wrong pronoun, uh, you get kicked out. And, and if you use the word Oriental instead of Asian, oh, you know, you're making people feel badly. And if you don't spell black with a capital B and white with a, a, a lowercase w, you're hurting my feelings. And but somehow, if you go for the elimination of all Jews, well, you know, that's a complicated issue. So what you get is the takeover of, of universities. And here's where I'm a big fan of Ron DeSantis, who is one of the leaders, along with Abbott of um, uh, Texas, who is uh, trying to fight this stuff. I think he's fighting it in the wrong way. But my heart goes out to him because at least he's fighting it. Uh, what he should do instead, I think, instead of um, telling professors not to discuss critical race theory, I mean, professors should discuss anything they want. The problem is that uh, on college campuses, the professoriate is, oh, 98% um, um, left wing and 2% um, uh, uh, conservative or libertarian. Mm -hmm. And what he ought to do, I think, instead, if I were his advisor, what I would say is, look, the next hundred hires in all the University of Florida has to be either a conservative or a libertarian. So there's nothing wrong with having a debate over contentious issues. But when when you have the, the, the decks are stacked in terms of the left and the Marxists and the feminists and the queerists or whatever they're calling themselves, uh, then you don't have much of a, a dialogue. And what you have instead is a cancel culture. Anyone, you know, I've been canceled uh, several times. Uh, people invite me to speak at a college campus and, and the students uh, say, oh, no, no, Walter Block is evil. We can't have him. And it's not just me. I mean, poor, um, um, uh, uh, what's his name? Charles Murray. Uh, Amy Wax, uh, people like that who are in the news. Uh, it's just despicable what's going on on college campuses.
It absolutely is. Uh, it's it's terrible. Uh, you know, I wound up getting my doctorate. I got it in Mexico. I wrote the dissertation about Queen Elizabeth II, basically her skill at managing human resources. Uh, and it's highly unlikely that most universities in America would have wanted me to do anything like that uh, because you're, you be quote unquote saying something nice about colonialism, imperialism. Uh, was the royal family diverse enough in 1957? Uh, it, it's, you know, you get into this craziness that's not intended to be something you could even try to make sense of. It's all uh, emotion designed to shut you down, cancel culture in action. Uh, so, you know, it, it is what it is, and it's something absolutely disgraceful. But uh, whatever. <laughs> so if I focus on it too much, I get too angry. So I'll just say, whatever but uh, it's whatever it is it, it's most certainly terrible now i think that looking at at the economy this year there is the issue of how companies are going to deal with this wokeism dei so on and so forth disney is a company that has lost a tremendous uh tremendous deal of valuation uh its stock has plummeted uh and uh, bob Iger, the ceo has said they're going to try to scale back the sort of cultural radicalism they've engaged in obviously it's towards the left but then it comes out that the new star wars movie is going to be intended to antagonize men and star wars now is being produced and distributed under disney so it's 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 interesting number one it seems that he has no control over his company uh number two obviously disney is emblematic of, of broader issues going on within uh, large corporate America. So that's why it's good to bring Disney up. It speaks to a lot of other companies who are engaged in many different, uh, you know, engaged in selling many different products and services. Number three, it's interesting because at Disney, they've lost so much of their company's value. And yet the people there are hell-bent on continuing creating these products that people don't want. Disney's lost value because people don't want what it's selling. That's it, really. Uh, and uh, the people who are at Disney are saying, full speed ahead, we don't care what the CEO wants, we don't care what the public wants, we're going to keep producing this stuff that people don't want to consume. Uh, this really speaks to a mindset that a lot of people have in Fortune 500 or even 1,000. Uh, America. Uh, Walter, anything to say about this very unique issue with 2024 in the American economy? Well, you know, they have this view that all straight white males are evil, uh, privileged or whatever. I, I mean, I have uh, grandsons, eight years old, twin boys, uh, they're white. <laughs> I don't know if they'll be straight, but they're <laughs> certainly white males. And uh, they have privilege. I what they do, and again, Thomas Sowell is, is one of the best economists on this sort of a thing. Just because one group is above the other group in certain accomplishments doesn't mean that there's anything untoward. Look at the NBA, the National Basketball Association. Uh, it's mainly black. And, and they don't have any affirmative action there. Uh, you get on the, on the basketball court, it's because you belong there based on your skills and merit and, and your ability to jump 40 feet in the air and, and stuff like that. Uh, there are whites in there, but and, and those whites deserve to be in there because they were picked, not because they were white or black or anything. We have too much of this uh, picking on the base of pigment and plumbing. Uh, we need a bit more merit. Uh, one of my... Um, things that really ticks me off is I have a, a young woman I know uh, who just got cancer and she had a breast removed. And I asked myself, why? And my answer is affirmative action. 
because we don't have the first team in the laboratories and in the universities in biology and chemistry uh, who are discovering cures for cancer. So yes, we will one day have a cure for cancer, but it'll be put off by 10, 20, 30 years because of affirmative action. Affirmative action is a murderous thing. It's not just a, a nasty thing, it's also murderous. Uh, the, these people are responsible for uh, uh, unjust deaths of, um, of people for, who die from cancer or heart attack or uh, stroke or whatever it is. We need our first team in the laboratories and we're not getting our first team. Yes, we have talented people there, but they're chose based on merit and their plumbing and their pigment, which is totally irrelevant. And, and th this has got horrific effects and all too often major corporations are now uh, saying, well, there, there must be a woman or a black person or an Indian or somebody on the board or at least um, one third of the board or something like that. No, we, we, we want to be a meritocratic uh, society if we want to have uh, prosperity. Why do you think that over the last several years, uh, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, and wokeism more broadly have become so thoroughly ingrained in corporate America? Is there any uh, singular reason? Do you think it's a host of reasons uh, or something that is too uh, multifaceted to even begin addressing here? What's your perspective on it? Well, I promised you an hour and we're just about at, at an hour now. So let this be the last question. Here again, I'm going to resort to something Milton Friedman said, which I think is very good. What he said was it was during the Vietnam War. During the Vietnam War, if you were getting a PhD, you didn't have to go fight. So who was uh, fighting and who was um, uh, getting a PhD in, in uh, various subjects? The left were uh, getting PhDs. The left were uh, getting into universities. It was conservatives who went off and fought the wars. So now what you had is a whole... Uh, uh, a group of lefties who were getting their PhDs, who were becoming assistant professors, who were becoming full professors, who were becoming deans, who were becoming provosts, who were becoming college presidents. Look at again, uh, Harvard, MIT, and Penn. Uh, they were women, but the, this type of people. And, and the universities trained the next generation. And when you have 98% uh, of, of the professoriate or 95% or whatever it is uh, of the left, well, then you're gonna get a lot of left stuff. And I think, that, I don't know that, that that's the entire explanation for why universities and now journalists and clergy and, and um, uh, corporations are going woke, but I think that's part of it. You know, it used to be we had only economic Marxism. And the bourgeois were the bad guys, the proletariat were the good guys. Now we have a thing called cultural Marxism and, and uh, not only straight white males, but also Orientals are, are evil uh, because they're more accomplished than other groups. And, 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 and this um, has just taken over like a virus. So again, I'm a big fan of DeSantis for at least trying to stop this. And uh, on that note, unfortunately, we do have to depart. But Walter, I do look forward to having you back on the show as long as you like to come on. There's a hell of a lot more to discuss. Israel, your book, Defending the Indefensible uh, or Undefendable. I, I often get the, the title messed up in my mind. Uh, but uh, very glad to, uh, to discuss that as I was glad to discuss this. Thank you very much for stopping by. My pleasure. Always a pleasure. Please invite me again. I'll come uh, with bells on. <laughs> Outstanding. <Take> care. <laughs> Have a great night, Walter. Have a great night, everyone. Thank you very much for tuning in. Stay safe, be well, and cheers.